Welcome back to Round Guy, the podcast, as we do round three with Phil Dixon as he talks about the Negro Leagues. He has, uh, let me read some of these books that he's got. He's got uh, Dizzy Dean and the Barnstorming Tour. He's got Wilbur Bullet Rogan, uh, 1938, the Negro Leagues, uh, the Rube Foster, A Harvest on uh, Freedom's Field. I mean, he's this guy's wrote nine books. And we can't stop talking to him. Uh, anyway, uh, welcome back to the program, Phil. Okay. I'm, hey, my pleasure to talk baseball. Well, in ours, too, uh, we left our second installment, beginning our third, uh, with Phil S. Dixon, author, entrepreneur, card collector, uh, just an all-around expert in the Negro Leagues and written many, many books. Uh, last time we spoke all right and i started a conversation i'm eager for you to finish uh your uh ability to have gone all over the country and contacted so many uh of the uh, uh, uh negro league players and their families and and having conversations and taking notes and everything and i asked whether or not you collected any other sports memorabilia other than the baseball cards and you were about to to get into some of that when we ran out of time so let's pick up there phil tell us a little bit about uh your collecting uh, other uh, items other than uh, baseball cards and beatles cards yeah you know one of the things that i have uh, for years you know i i would write people and uh so for instance uh i'm just framing up a few of my items here that I've never gotten framed, but like, for instance, I remember one time I wrote Gene Autry, and um, and I wanted to know what he thought about some of the black players who played for the Angels while he was the owner. And so Gene wrote me back this uh, uh, nice letter, and then he autographed a picture for me of uh, him in his Western gear when he was playing guitar as a, uh, you know, singing cowboy. And I, <laughs> I have that in my collection uh it's kind of a, one of those offbeat things that you have. I remember also another thing I have in my collection, uh, 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 Lyman Bostock. When Lyman Bostock, uh, he played for, he was playing for the Angels at that time, I believe, or, or Minnesota, one of those teams. And uh, he, uh, he got murdered in uh, Gary, Indiana. And I wrote his, his wife a really nice letter, and she sent me something back on the uh, funeral home stationery. So I have that in my collection. Uh, little oddball things. I have a, I have a wedding invite from Danny Tartable. How about that? To come to his wedding. Uh, so, wow. So and I and and, and and I haven't mentioned this, but from 1987 to 1990, uh, I was the assistant director of public relations for the Kansas City Royals, and uh, so I got a chance to know. Uh, all the great Royals players who were there, Frank White and Willie Wilson. Matter of fact, I talked to Willie uh, last week. I was sending him an email. Uh, and I've been able to have personal friends like Bill James, the great baseball writer. I got an email from Bill just the other day. Uh, so it's it's been a, you know, just a really fun time. But uh, the collectibles are just things that I kind of picked up. And they become real prominent to me, especially as you get older. And, and you realize, I guess, not everybody got a letter from Gene Autry uh, or Arthur Ashe or people like that, you know. So 
uh, and I'm just really proud that I, you know, made a life out of baseball, and and it's it's been quite rewarding. I I have a uh, a, a bat of Lyman Bostocks, uh, wow. a, a broken bat. Wow. Because back back then, before people were collecting this stuff, I was. And after a game, I'd run down to the dugout and ask if uh, anybody cracked a bat, and the bat boys would give it to me. And now, now the baseball teams realize there's some money to be had there, and so uh, they have to uh, collect. They can't give the bats away anymore, but they take them to their gift shop, and they That's sell right. them out of their gift shop. That's absolutely correct. Uh, look, look. Now, now, now you got me wanting to know where I can trade you <laughs> to get one of those to go with my uh, letter. But yeah, oh yeah, oh that. Yeah, but and and, and then mentioning nice Lyman Bostock's name, uh, didn't didn't his father play in the major leagues? He played in the Negro League. He played Negro, in the Negro League. League. Yeah, that's even right. better. Sure did. sure did. Lyman Bostock Senior. That's correct. I and, I, uh, I thought not, I remembered that. Yeah, believe it or not, he made bats. Oh, really? Yes, he sure did. He made bats, and I don't have one of them, uh, but he definitely made bats. I I do have. Um, there was a guy named Dave Malosh who played for the Chicago American Giants who wrote poetry. I do have one of his books. Uh, wow. Books. So you know, there's. You know, when you, when you talk about collectibles, there's all kind of things that you can literally collect uh, sure. when it comes to this great game of baseball. And, and quite naturally, you know, we think about baseball cards. And if you came from my era, you know, they were pretty cheap to get, you know, sure. uh, five five cards and stick a bubble gum for a nickel. And uh, and you were in business, right? Sure. And, uh, so a lot of kids from our generation, I don't know how old you are, but especially my generation, that was their introduction to collecting anything, you know, whether it was comics or baseball cards or bottle tops or anything. You just found something, stamps. That was another one that people collected quite a bit. But that's what children did back then. And it kept us alive, kept us out of trouble, and it kept us with something interesting to do. And for some of us, uh, it turned into a profession. Well, and, and certainly uh, when it was started, it was out of passion and love for the game of baseball. And now, uh, like you, you know, and me, with some of the things I've collected, you know, it's it's a moneymaker now. It's so sought after that people are willing to pay a good deal of money for some of these things. Oh, absolutely. That is so true. And uh, some, some of the things that, you know, uh, we have, you just kind of take for granted and you said, <laughs> maybe I better make, not make that mistake. So, uh, my son who, um, who has his master's degree in history, he teach history. And, you know, uh, recently he was, uh, this past summer, my wife had him over cleaning up, helping her clean up the basement. And, and he wouldn't let her touch certain things because he said, that belongs to dad. You better check with him first. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. and I, I, I think about some of that. It's, it's wise to not uh, allow your mom to get near your collection because my mother probably threw out three-fourths of my cards and and it uh, has kept me from becoming a millionaire, you know? Something you have a passion for collecting, uh, you have to make sure other people know what it means to you 
so they don't uh, throw it out because they don't know. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes how you dis display your items. You know, like I said, I have letters that I'm just now getting framed up. And part of framing those letters up is that when, when they're in a frame, people know that there's a reason why they're in frame and they become more valuable and they can sense the value because it's framed up. So, yeah, how, how you display your collectibles, you just throw them in an old box and uh, some people just see stuff in an old box and uh, don't see any value in it. Well, and, and then it, over time, you get smarter about how you do it. For, uh, for example, uh, autographed baseballs, if they're anywhere near uh, a direct sunlight or even indirect sunlight, they can, those signatures can fade on you to where you can't even read them anymore. And the same with uh, autographs in general, whether they're on paper or pictures. But it, you, you really have to kind of know a little about what you're doing or there's a chance those autographs may fade away and you no longer know who they are. Oh, yeah. And, and, you, and you know this, uh, when we collected baseball cards, you know, you try to keep your cards in the best condition as possible. But now they rank the cards as a 9 or 10 or 11 or well, they don't go to 11, but it could be a 0.5, which none of that, that was completely unheard of. We just never heard anything like that back then. So, yeah, you just, if, you know, it's it's an evolving history. It's a, an evolving experience. So to take care of your collectibles, you have to stay up to date with the ways that it's being done. Absolutely. And, and Phil, let me ask you this. Uh, and, and I'd like to get your take on it. You started out as a youth, and, and your passion for the game of baseball uh, made you follow the game and learn more about it, and it's ended up being a, a lifelong involvement with the sport and, and writing books about uh, those teams and those players. Uh, back then, and I, I'm not that uh, – I'm a little older than you, but, but – uh, I remember going to uh, Syracuse, New York, where I grew up around there, and 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 uh, the that was at that time the AAA affiliate uh, for the Yankees. So me and my friends would go around over to each dugout and try to get some autographs on our programs, and and uh, seemingly back then uh, these ball players didn't have a problem with taking the program and your pen and writing their name on it. And now you fast forward to today, and currently it seems like ball players are reluctant and unwilling and angered when, when you ask them for their autograph. Have you noticed that change in attitude that way? I've seen a little bit of that through the years, and sometimes I find I found ways to work through it. I remember a uh, I used to freelance articles for a local newspaper, and I wrote a story about Frank Robinson being a modern-day Ruth Foster. And uh, <clears throat> at that time, I had a Major League Press pass. This is probably about 80, I want to say maybe 85 or 86. And so I went into the Royals Clubhouse, and Frank Robinson was there, and I presented him with this article. And I said, by the way, Frank, because I knew he didn't sign autographs. So <laughs> I said, I said, I have to have this uh, Puerto Rican uh, magazine where you were the manager of the San Trucy team, I think it was. 
I said, you mind signing that for me? And he said, I knew this. He said, I knew the article was going to cost me something. And he signed it for me. And I have it in my collection today. But sometimes when ball players with people would come in and they have, you know, not one baseball, but they may have nine or 10 baseballs. A lot of baseball players are reluctant to sign that because they know that they're putting the item on the market. And, uh, and, and, and then a lot of their agents encourage them not to sign because they're going to enter into contracts with companies for them to sign. And those companies can then market those items at a higher price. So uh, it's, it's the business of sports that's taken over more and more. I, I can remember I lived in Kansas City. So I would go over to the uh, stadium, uh, which was municipal stadium at the time. And I remember I could wait by the back door and there was no police security when the ball players came out. And I and I actually carried ball players' luggage to their cars. You know, they said, "Can I carry your luggage?" You know, just asking questions. And so people like uh, back in that time, uh, Joe Foy and Pat Kelly and uh, those guys would come out, and Bob Oliver, and, and you know, and and you could just feel and touch them and and talk to them. And it was just uh, just a whole different time. But now, you know, everything's big time and. And it's hard to get the players, and a lot of players don't live in your community like they used to. And you know, it's, it's just a different time. I I agree. Uh, I can remember. Uh, I I kind of gave up on the. It's tough for me to get around here anymore. But but back when I was still active collecting, I I would uh, I would just take one item, and I would ask that player to personalize it to me in hopes that they would realize that, you know, I'm not going to put it on eBay and, and that I'm going to, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a legitimate collector and an enthusiast and that I wanted it for my personal uh, collection and I wasn't going to sell it. But even, even doing it that way, you could still count on some guys being pretty persnickety and unwilling to sign. So, and I, I would think back to where I, you know, Babe Ruth was uh, was a wonderful ball player and, and, and apparently very uh, courteous and eager to sign stuff. I, I've never heard a story about Babe Ruth refusing to sign and, and uh, you know, being, you know, rude to people like you hear of so many uh, of these players today. It's, it's kind of, you're right, it's a sign of the times. And it's, I sure wish it wasn't uh, wasn't that way. But yet, like you said too, it's it's just part of the business. Yeah, it's a it's it's a big business has definitely entered into the uh, sports arena, and uh, so that changes a lot of things. But uh, you know, if you're a fan, there's still lots of ways you can touch ball players, whether it's uh, you know uh, appearance, and certainly a lot of guys after their career is over, you can you can still reach them and and uh talk to them and sometimes some guys get easier once their career is over uh, to to talk to so i've over the years i've talked to a lot of uh, ball players after their career was over it was much easier to reach them you know where i've met and developed friendships with uh, many of the players that have retired is through these fantasy camps are you familiar with those baseball fantasy camps sure sure now would it be would it be feasible that or would they be too old now to uh to do something like that with 
uh, some of the old uh, players from the Negro Leagues. Yeah, I think that <laughs> I think that window has passed on the Negro Leagues because if anyone really played in the Negro Leagues, I mean, there's some guys who played after 1955, but for the most part, anybody who played in the Negro Leagues, um, you know, they'd be 90 years old. So that right. wouldn't, be, wouldn't be much of a fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I I remember, uh, gosh, they're you know you're right they're they're passed on and many of the superstars from uh, various teams growing up are are have passed or are much too old to do that. But I can remember, right. I can remember being at some where I I met some of the black ball players. Ernie Banks was one, uh, but he passed. But he was in one of the fantasy camps I was at. Uh, wonderful Ernie, man, just a, yeah. a great human being. Yeah, Ernie, Ernie was a joy to talk to. Uh, I happened to have something uh, signed by Ernie, uh, uh, you know, when I met Ernie. And I have something signed by Hank Aaron. Interesting story by Hank was uh, uh, my son was away in college, and um, he wanted a picture signed by Hank Aaron. So my wife went and asked him. He was appearing in Kansas City. Would he mind signing something to my son? And he said, well, he said, if I start signing out, everybody's going to want something. He said, plus, I'm getting ready to go up to the stage. He said, I'll tell you what, when, when I'm finished, come back here and I'll sign it. But when he finished, my wife came uh, back to the door, and he just happened to be going in. They said, well, no one can see Hank, and he saw her. He said, no, I told her she can come back here. And that's how I got my son's the picture autographed. And uh, he has it on his wall to this day. So, but you know, uh, the generosity of baseball players is still out there. And, uh, you know, you just have to uh, approach them and know that some ball players are not going to be as friendly. But once again, there's going to be lots of opportunities for, for them to sign. One of, one of the ones that we used to have quite a bit here in Kansas City with the Royals, especially in the old days, was, you know, one of the local retail stores would have them out for an hour or something like that. Uh, that was, um, you know, uh, that was pretty quite common. And those those opportunities still exist. You just have to follow the team real closely and uh, follow your favorite player closely. But, yeah, and, and, and those become treasures that last a lifetime. I still have autographs I got as a child, and especially in my early 20s, that I still have today. Yeah, and you never forget the story that goes with it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you can tell, you know, somebody that sees a signature on a ball or a photo and they ask you about it and say, yeah, that, I, I was in Kansas City. It was on a Saturday and we were at a clothing store and this guy was there. I went through the line, got him, you know, they, you know exactly where it was. I've heard, I've heard those kind of stories all my life uh, from, from everybody, including myself. And, and, you know, uh, boy, I tell you, you know, uh, being a being an author and being able to write now when you go to places, I start thinking about the places I've been in Iowa. You know, I, I mentioned uh, Sioux City and Council Bluffs. Of course, I've been around the Quad Cities, but I've been to little small towns like Corning, Corning, Iowa, uh, Creston, Iowa. How about Creston? Iowa, that's pretty uh -huh. small. Uh, but I've been to those places. Of course, I've been to Dubuque as well. Uh, up there around the field of dreams. So uh, I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, yep. I, I I didn't get to the field of dreams, um, but I was in Dubuque. So oh, okay. So I'll get to the field of dreams. Hopefully, twenty twenty two will be a little more promising, and 
we'll get back out and get to do some things. And uh, I uh, you and know, sell your book. That, that yeah. would make a perfect play because there's uh, uh, you know like a couple hundred people a day show up out there. Wow. And and, and uh, there's a guy named Tony Laren Cotter, and Tony was uh, part. He was actually the owner of the Ted Williams baseball card set. Uh, that came out in 1994, and Tony just became part owner of that uh, Field of Dreams. And when it was announced, he wanted me to come up, but I I didn't want to take a chance on the COVID. So uh, you know, I have a lot more things I want to do after the COVID. So I'm hoping that it'll pass <laughs> and I get back out there a little worry free, right? So uh, but yeah, he just became part owner, and uh, I had worked with him with through the Ted Williams Baseball Corps Company uh, back in 1994, 90. 293. Wow. Hey, Phil, uh, listen, uh, my grandpa uh, was a, uh, just loved the Negro Leagues and really, really enjoyed it. And in fact, I think he'd start out like as a bat boy as a kid. And I think he actually worked where, up where he was pitching for some of the local teams that played the uh, Negro Leagues. And he was uh, very good friends with uh, Satchel Page. And he talked endlessly about four players that uh, – he talked about a lot of players, but I can't remember them all. He talked about Satchel. He talked about Cool Papa Bell. He said he was faster than Jesse Owens. Uh, he talked about uh, Roy Campanella. He said, boy, Roy Campanella was, you know, he, he just ne- – and uh, Ernie Banks, he saw him play too in the Negro Leagues. Wow. Uh, yeah, those are all great names. Those are all great names. Well, you you make me think about you know when you talk about players. Boy, I, I, an Iowa town that we have not mentioned today. Uh, there was a team uh, in a town, and the team was called the Buxton Iowa Wonders. Have you are you familiar with that team? No, I haven't heard of them. Yeah, nor, nor have I. Yeah, it's, it's listed as a ghost town today, but at one time it was uh, they called it the a black utopia. And it was a mining town uh, there in Iowa. And many famous black teams. Ruth Foster took his team there uh, to play the uh, Buxton, Iowa Wonders. As you, you might, your listeners. Buxton, yeah, I know where that is. It's right by Oskaloosa. It was an all-black town. And it was a coal yeah. mining town. Well, they had a pretty great baseball team. And they would, uh, I know they came to my hometown and played in Kansas City, Kansas, against the Kansas City, Kansas Giants. Around 1909, 1910, 1911 through there. But Ruth Foster in 1909 actually took the Chicago Leland Giants, who at that time were considered the world's champions, to Buxton. Yeah. So that, that was the name of the team, Buxton? The Buxton, Iowa Wonders. Buxton, mm-hmm. Iowa. And you say, Dave, that that was down here uh, around yeah, right by your right by where you live in Oskaloosa, just outside of town. It's still a community. But it's just you know, unincorporated. But, wow, uh, how about that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, the baseball history and where baseball was played is just one of the uh, fabulous stories. And even like Charles City, Charles City got all of the black baseball teams that were on the road. And at that particular time, like the Gilkerson Union Giants would come through there. Uh, it was a... Uh, a team called the St. Louis Blues, who represented the Piney Woods Community Life College out of Mississippi, they would travel and go through there. Uh, of course, the Kansas City Monarchs played in almost all of these places. So, yeah, if you know, you could tell the, the Negro League story without mentioning Iowa, 
but it wouldn't be a good suggestion. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, my grandpa also said that uh, during the, I guess, the segregation or, or whatever it would have been in the Midwest, he said that the, the black baseball, black sports and businesses kind of worked together and they kind of thrived, you know? There was black gas stations maybe and black restaurants and black hotels and there was a lot of, you know, jobs that went back and forth. And he said uh, after Jackie Robinson and then the Negro Leagues faded out, he said it was, he watched a, 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 like a crushing blow to the economy. Oh, yes. Now, you know, what's interesting about that, that's what it would be like in a major, you know, maybe a major metropolitan area. But once you got outside of the metropolitan area, you, you were pretty much dealing with, you know, white communities. And the white communities would benefit the same way from those teams coming to those towns. And that's why they continued to book them, because generally it was going to be one of the best attended games of the year or most attended games, period, of the year. So uh, they worked in tandem with many communities outside the black uh, communities. And, and uh, another person, I have not mentioned his name today, are you familiar with a guy named Ray L. Dome? No. Spell, spell the last name. Dome, D-O-A-N. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar. I've not heard of that name. One of my favorite promoters, uh, Ray L. Dome, uh, his home was Muscatine, Iowa. And, and Ray L. Doan, uh, he was the one who booked the House of David uh, baseball team. So he was the one who signed Grover Cleveland Alexander to the House of David. Uh, he invented a thing called donkey baseball. You ever heard of donkey baseball? I have heard of that, yeah. Well, Ray L. Doan out of Muscatine, Iowa, invented it, <laughs> As, uh, amongst other things. But, uh, yes, uh, Ray L. Doan is one of the great all-time promoters. I tell you, for what he did for baseball, he should be in the Hall of Fame. But his name rarely gets mentioned. And uh, and another team I might mention, was, which was uh, operated out of Council Bluffs, was the Dwarfies team. The Council Bluff Dwarfies. And the Council Bluff Dwarfies was a serial, like Post or Kellogg. And uh-huh. they operated out of Council Bluffs. And Dwarfies was the first serial to put, like, cartoons and things like that on their boxes and put toys in the box. And they, that was, uh, they had a baseball team, and many uh, African-American teams, including the House of David, played against the Dwarfies. Wow. I smell a new book, Phil. <laughs> well, we got two minutes left, guys. Well, I, well, I just want to thank you guys for having me on. Uh to talk a little bit about uh, the Negro Leagues and to certainly to talk a little bit about Iowa and, and giving people a chance to hear this information uh, because it's pretty fascinating. And uh, I just appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity. We appreciate you taking time out of your day and, and probably time away from your writing to talk with us and the folks that listen to us about how important a start Iowa uh, was to uh, the Negro League Baseball, and that if they purchase a copy, can learn more about it. And before we let you go, uh, let our listeners in on, again, how they can obtain a copy of, of your book and or books. Yeah, if you if you go to my website, uh, which is nlbalive.com, NLB, like Negro League Baseball Alive.com, you can order an autograph copy. But if you go to any place where good books are sold, 
you can find a Phil Dixon publication and you can order it there as well. So, uh, you know, I encourage you to do that. And uh, as long as they keep reading, I'll keep writing. Well, we're glad to hear you say that, Phil. I couldn't have enjoyed this uh, more, although I could if we were uh, sitting there with you. Uh, that would have added a little bit to it. But just talking with you over the podcast has been fantastic. And, and know that down the road somewhere, hopefully this coming baseball season, if they're able to get their uh, ducks in a row and, and get a season together, that, that somewhere our paths will cross. And, and I would love to meet you in person and shake your hand. And we certainly thank you for taking your time to be with us. All right, now I'll look forward to that. And once again, thanks a lot. If I get to Iowa, I'll make sure to contact you guys. Perfect. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, and Merry Christmas, guys. Merry Same Christmas. to you, sir. Merry Christmas. All right, that's it. Thanks, guys. We loved it.